Good morning. Well, I'm, I, I missed uh, the discussion about the dean's ministry, and I'm sorry I had to miss it. It was up in the junior high class, but I know a bunch of you got to attend that, and I am sure that it was enlightening. I look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you guys when, when I can. Um, let's talk about where we've been thus far, because uh, we've already covered a fair amount of ground in Paul's argument in these first three chapters. First, in uh, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, Paul introduced the theme of the epistle, which is the gospel, the good news of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And he explained that in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Then, in order to set the stage for presenting the good news of the gospel, he first began to lay out the bad news. Starting at chapter 1, verse 18, and proceeding through 3.20, he presents an indictment of all mankind. First, in chapter 1, 18 to 32, he says that all men are condemned because even though God gave mankind clear knowledge of himself through that which has been made, men suppressed the truth of God with a lie and went their own way. Refusing to honor God as God or to give thanks to Him, men created their own idols in the form of created things, starting with man himself as the first idol. So God gave men over to their own devices to follow their own degrading passions and depraved mind. Now last week, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul switched from third person, they, to second person, you, and he extended his indictment to all those who pass judgment on others, saying that such men condemn themselves because they are guilty of the very things that they judge in other men. The essence of his argument in chapter 2 thus far is the same as in chapter 1, that all men stand condemned in the eyes of God. God will judge every man without partiality on the basis of his deeds. Finally, Paul said in the section we looked at last week that whether men have sinned without having access to the the written law of God or, or whether they have sinned while under the written law of God, their sin still condemns them in the eyes of God. All men are on the same playing field, and the law is is no advantage. That's where he's going with that that idea. Now, this morning in in chapter two, verses seventeen to twenty five, twenty nine, Paul's going to refine that argument further, focusing on the one who bears the name Jew. And by the way, I changed the title of this uh, from what's in the bulletin. Uh, I think in the bulletin I said, "You who boast in the law." But as I continue to study the passage, there's more here than just boasting in the law. Uh, there's boasting in circumcision. There's boasting in just in one's uh, oneself as the bearer of the knowledge of God. And so, what it uh, really the way Paul labels this is, he's, he he says the one I'm talking to is the one who bears the name Jew. So I retitled it, "You Who Bear the Name Jew." Now, it, this morning, what he's going to do is address the question. Uh, 
what advantage has the Jew? He's going to begin that, that discussion, and that discussion actually continues well into chapter 3. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, that we'll look at next time, he'll finish out this whole indictment section by moving to the first person, from they to you to we. And he'll address the question, are we, Jews, better than those Gentiles? This morning we're going to see how Paul breaks down his indictment against the one who bears the name Jew by first posing a set of questions to the Jew and then answering them. He starts with the presumption that the Jew makes, then he challenges that presumption with some questions, and then he answers his question. The heart of the question that he presents to this to the Jewish person that he's speaking to is, are you a guide to the blind? Or are you a blind guide? Uh, after he talks, after he presents the presumption, the question, and answers the question, then he moves into the, uh, into sort of another question, and that is, what benefit is your circumcision? And that's in verses 25 to 29. Now I noted last week that throughout Romans 2, Paul uses the second person. But I should have pointed out that it's Second person singular. It's you, not you all. By the way, one of the distinctives that makes uh, Southern American English superior to the dialects in the rest of the country is that we actually have a word for second person plural. It's y'all. But I digress. Uh, in Romans 2, Paul, not only does he use... Uh, second person singular, he also uses phrases like every man, chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and verse 10, and every soul of man, verse 9. He is very deliberately bringing his indictment of mankind down to the level of each individual person. And beginning at verse 17 of chapter 2, he focuses that second person even further. Because now... The you upon whom he zeroes in is one individual prototypical Jew. Now by prototypical I mean that Paul is addressing sort of a composite character, one person who represents many. And this person embodies everything that characterizes the Jews of his day. This is a sort of Jewish everyman. For any Jew in Paul's audience who's paying attention, uh, this should have been very unsettling. It's sort of like looking into the eyes of the Mona Lisa. Wherever you walk in the room, she's staring right at you. Only in this case, the eyes that are fixed upon you belong to the one true God whose holy name you are guilty of profaning, according to the words of Paul. And that's exactly where Paul wants every Jew who's hearing his words to be as he writes these uncompromising words. Indicted. Convicted accountable to God for choosing arrogant self-exaltation over humble submission to God. Paul sets up this individualized indictment with great finesse. First, he draws the reader in with what seem to be flattering words, and then he closes the trap. Many of the Jews of Paul's day would happily embrace his description of them in verses 17 to 20. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, 
being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now this self-confidence that Paul describes in the Jew he's singling out seems to mirror that in his description in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, of himself before the Lord latched onto him. In Philippians 3, Paul says, If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. If anyone understood what it was like for Jews to justify their self-righteous and hypocritical mindset, it was Paul. Because he had been right there with the Jew that he's indicting at this point. I said early in this series that I believe God saved Paul the way he did because he intended to use Paul to show all men how it actually works when lost men are saved by God. Paul knows as he writes these words in Romans 2 that he was once the man he is so vigorously indicting. And nobody more earnestly desires to see the Jews in Rome and beyond Rome get this indictment than Paul. Later in Romans 9, verses 3 and 4, Paul will say, For I wish that I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Having laid out from his first-hand knowledge the mindset, the the self-exalting presumption that characterized the Jews of his day, Paul then proceeds to challenge that presumption with a question. And the first part of verse 21 is the heart of the question that he's posing. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? The Jew who presumes to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, who sees himself as the mediator of the knowledge of God and of God's law, does that Jew subject himself to the same truths to which he calls the blind, the foolish, the immature? And that question is at the heart then of a series of questions that Paul poses in verses 21 to 23. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? That's the essential question. Then he says, you who preach that one should steal, should not steal, excuse me, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus blasted the Pharisees' concept of righteousness. They believed the standard of righteousness that God required was attainable by rigorously keeping the external requirements of the law. They assumed that if they never actually killed a person, they could not be guilty of breaking the commandment not to murder. But Jesus said, 
that if a man is angry with his brother and calls him a fool, he is as guilty as the one who physically murders and is, is worthy of the fire of hell. That's Matthew 5, 21 to 22. The Jewish leaders thought that if they never actually committed the physical act of adultery, that they were okay with that commandment too. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Paul is holding the Jews to the exact same standard of righteousness and law-keeping that Jesus proclaimed. The only standard that has ever existed in the eyes of God. His righteousness. And the Jews, just like the Gentiles, whose uncleanness the Jews love to point out, fall infinitely short of God's standard of righteousness. Now, one of the questions Paul poses is, do you rob temples? You who abhor idols, and that's hard to say, abhor idols. Do you rob temples? In verse 22, that phrase, do you rob temples, I think requires just a bit of context. There's only one other place in the New Testament where that word, rob temples, uh, occurs, and it's Acts 19, verse 37. You might flip over there real quick. Acts 19 finds the apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus, during his third missionary journey. The crowds in Ephesus had become agitated because a man named Demetrius, who made his living selling silver statues, idols, of the goddess Artemis, was complaining loudly that Paul's message against idolatry was costing him his business. The town clerk of Ephesus declared that if Demetrius or any other man had a complaint against Paul, he would need to take it to the proper authorities. And the town clerk said publicly that Paul and his associates were not guilty of being robbers of temples. The practice of temple robbing had to do with stealing the statues of idols and other valuable objects from pagan temples. And apparently the ones who were most engaged in that practice were Jews. Some among the Jewish leaders apparently participated in the robbing of temples in the name of fighting against idolatry. In other words, they stole valuable statues of idols and proclaimed their motives to be godly, but their true motivation was to line their own pockets with the proceeds from selling off the silver and valuable materials from which these statues were made. At the heart of it, what they were doing was simply theft. And this was just one of many manifestations of self-serving hypocrisy that characterized the Pharisees. In verse 24 of Romans Romans chapter 2, Paul answers the questions that he's just posed. He says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, you, the Jew, just as it is written. This accusation is the heart of the passage that we're looking at today in verses 17 to 29. Not only are the Jews not guides to the blind and lights in the darkness, they are blind guides. Rather than acting as instruments in the hands of God to draw the Gentiles into relationship with himself, 
the Jews are causing the Gentiles to blaspheme the holy name of God. Now, this accusation by God against His people Israel is not a new one. In fact, it's an ancient accusation. Paul tacks on the phrase at the end of verse 24, just as it is written. Anytime you see that phrase, that means look in the Old Testament. He's pointing his readers back to the Old Testament to corroborate his point, and that corroboration is not hard to find. Isaiah 52, 1 through 5, and Ezekiel 36, 16 to 23, in both those passages, God says that Israel caused his holy name to be profaned among the nations into which God had exiled them. In Isaiah 52, 5, God says of Israel's captors, Egypt and Assyria, those who rule over captive Israel, howl. And my name, God says, my name is continually blasphemed all day long. In Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23, immediately before God declares His new covenant promises to wayward Israel, He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Three times he tells Israel, you have profaned my name in the midst of the nations into which I sent you. And he says, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And I'm not going to do it this morning, but if you keep reading Ezekiel 36, you find out that as we saw when we studied the New Covenant, the way in which God determined to vindicate His name is one of the greatest plot twists in human history. Because instead of, instead of vindicating His holy name against Israel by further judging them, he says he will vindicate his holy name by redeeming them. By forgiving their sins, by replacing their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, by writing his law upon their hearts and making them to truly know him and obey him. Paul will get to that promise later in Romans. For now I need to stay on point. So if you want to know more about how God will vindicate his name, uh, Go home and read the rest of Ezekiel 36 and then skip ahead to Romans 11. The point here in Romans 2 is that Israel had always and persistently provoked God to anger. At certain points in their history, God had chastised them harshly, judging them by taking them out of the land and moving them away into exile at the hands of other nations. To the rulers of those surrounding nations, God's punishments against His people made it appear that God had abandoned Israel. Or worse, that Israel's God didn't even have the power to protect them. Maybe He didn't even exist. Those pagan rulers found in God's treatment of His own people the opportunity to mock Israel's God, to blaspheme against Him and to profane His name. Rather than fulfilling their priestly calling 
to proclaim the light of God's word to the Gentile nations, Israel had been the cause for the blaspheming of God's name among those Gentiles. And this had been going on for a very long time. In Paul's day, Israel was still a subservient nation within the nation of Rome, right? Just as they had been to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. There was no doubt that Rome, like other pagan nations that had ruled over Israel, considered Israel's God to be pretty much worthless. Because all they could see when they looked at Israel was a downtrodden, subservient nation that appeared to have no God to defend them. Yet Israel's perennial status as a captive nation never stopped the Jewish leaders from seeing themselves as superior to their Gentile captors because of their special relationship with God and their special relationship with the law of God as they perceived it to be. In Romans 2.24, Paul blasts that arrogant presumption, proclaiming anew that which God had proclaimed over and over again through his prophets throughout Israel's sordid history, that rather than honoring God and bringing the knowledge of God to the nations, Israel had chronically been the prime cause for the blaspheming of God's holy name among the nations. Now, in light of this very blunt answer that Paul gives to the questions he had just posed, Let's go back and look at those questions in a little bit more detail. Uh, Verses 21 to 24. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, Do you dishonor God? Paul's words here are remarkably like those of Jesus when he rebuked the Pharisees for their gross hypocrisy. Jesus told the multitudes to do as the Jewish leaders did, but most certainly not to do as the, excuse me, to do as they said, but most certainly not to do as they did. Because the Jewish leaders were hypocrites. They practiced the opposite of what they preached. And hypocrisy is a very big deal to God. Jesus pulled no punches when he addressed the hypocritical self-righteousness that characterized the Jewish leaders of his day. In fact, I believe the two sins that Jesus condemns the most harshly are unforgiveness and hypocrisy, both of which proceed from the same grand delusion called self-righteousness. Jesus spoke in blistering terms in Matthew chapter 23 when he exposed the gross hypocrisy of the Pharisees. This is just one brief excerpt from a chapter that's filled with our Lord's fierce accusations against the religious leaders of his day. He says, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Great picture, huh? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Five times in Matthew 23, Jesus says the Pharisees are blind. Yet they consider themselves to be a light in the darkness and a guide to the blind. Paul says of the Jew he describes, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. But they're just blind guides. Who in reality is the light to those who are in the darkness? Who is the embodiment of the knowledge of knowledge and of the truth. There's only one. John chapter 1, of course, verses 4 and 5, John says of the one called the Word, the one who existed in the beginning with God and is God, he said, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. <laughs> so these, the Jew who says he is a light in the darkness turned down the one who was and is the light in the darkness and refused him. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The Jew who believed that he had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth rejected the one who is the truth. You see, in Romans 2, Paul is describing a heart of arrogance that presumes to fulfill the role and purpose that is fulfilled only by Jesus Christ. Again, the heart of man's downfall is that he refuses to humbly honor God as God or to give thanks. <laughs> this morning in the junior high class, Ray was showing us we're doing a word study of the word worship. And he took us through about 12 verses where the word worship is either tied to or translated from the same word that means to bow down on your face flat on the ground. That's worship. And at the heart of that is humility. At the heart of that is knowing who God is and who you are in light of who God is. And Paul is saying there's nobody doing that. That's the heart of man's downfall. Man refuses to see himself in the light of God's holy character. And in the place of godly humility, man embraces a God-rejecting arrogance. Professing to be wise, men became fools. 
And the Jews were no different than the Gentiles they so readily condemned. They too exalted themselves rather than exalting God. They saw themselves as righteous instead of acknowledging that God alone is righteous. As Paul will go on to say in Romans 9, 31 and 32, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. It was all about their own performance. So they stumbled over this stumbling stone. In verses 25 to 29, Paul moves to yet another point of perceived superiority on the part of the Jew, that being circumcision. Now, the issue of circumcision comes up a whole lot in the Bible, both in New and Old Testaments, but Paul speaks of it more than any other New Testament writer. I think there's a reason for that. Circumcision is mentioned only five times in all four Gospels combined. It's mentioned eight times in the book of Acts, and it's mentioned 42 times in the epistles of Paul. 16 times in Romans alone. Paul is the only New Testament epistle writer who mentions circumcision, and he mentions it 42 times. See, for Paul, as the apostle appointed by Christ to bring the gospel to uncircumcised Gentiles, the matter of circumcision was a lightning rod when it came to the distinction between real godliness and fake superficial piety. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 17, God restated and expanded on His promises to Abraham and Abraham's offspring. Promises that He had initially given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And He commanded Abraham in Genesis 17 and every male descendant of Abraham from eight days old and upward to observe the covenant sign of circumcision throughout all their generations. In effect, the children of Abraham were to bear upon their bodies every day of their lives the reminder, the memorial of God's covenant promises and of His call to them to be set apart to Him. But because circumcision was a physical sign and because every male Israelite bore this sign, it was all too easy for the external sign to become no more than that. External. And Paul is saying in Romans 2 that that's exactly what happened with the Jews as a rule. His words here would have come as a very offensive slap in the face to the Jews who heard them. Starting at verse 25, chapter 2, he says, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirement of the law, but will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? (laughs) Will he not judge you? Who though having the letter and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, 
not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The notion that the true circumcision that God desired in his people was internal, not external, was also a very ancient notion. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, God said to Israel, Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. In Jeremiah 9, Verses 25 and 26, God speaks of His judgment against all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. And He declares that all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about a circumcision that's different than what the Jews are talking about. He says it's a circumcision that's made without human hands. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. The same thing Moses is talking about. Here in Romans 2, verses 26 and 27, Paul presents, much as he did earlier in verses 14 and 15, a hypothetical scenario in which the Gentile keeps the law without having the knowledge of the law. Once again, it's very important as we read his words that we remember where he is in his argument here. He's not talking here about how men, Gentiles or Jews, get right with God. He's talking about the fact that all men are wrong with God. That all men have responded to God's revelation of Himself by refusing to honor Him as God and to give thanks. And have instead suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That all men are condemned. So what is Paul's point in talking about the uncircumcised man who keeps the requirements of the law and whose uncircumcision is thus regarded as circumcision. Does such a man exist? Well, if we've been paying attention to everything Paul has already said, we have to conclude that apart from the righteousness of God that is through faith in Christ, which is where he's going, the answer is a resounding no. That man doesn't exist. There is no Jew and certainly no Gentile who keeps the requirement of God's law. The universal unrighteousness of every man is precisely the point of Paul's argument in this section of the book. So why, again, does he pose such a scenario when it doesn't exist in reality? I believe the answer to that question has to cover two bases. First, in this immediate context, Paul's objective is to rub the noses of the Jews in their grievous misjudgment regarding their own standing in the eyes of God. He's making the case that neither physical circumcision nor a knowledge of the law constitutes any kind of advantage in the eyes of God. All of that goes back to his statement in 2.13. Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. And there aren't any doers. But based on the broader context of this epistle, I have to conclude that Paul is doing another thing in this section. First, as we've just said, he's declaring the utter lostness of both Jew and Gentile apart from Christ. But secondly, and at the same time, it seems to me that Paul is very skillfully setting the stage for things he's going to have to say later, especially in Romans 11, about the way God is using believing Gentiles to provoke his elect among the Jews to jealousy so that they will come to faith in Christ and be saved. (laughs) 
Paul is saying, if a way exists by which a Gentile could meet the requirement of God's holy and righteous law, then the law would be no advantage to the Jew. And eventually in this book, he will say such a way does exist. But we're not there yet. In Romans 2, 25-29, again, he talks about the letter versus the Spirit. In verse 27, he says, Will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law, and by the way, of the law is not in there, having the letter and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. Then in verse 29, he says that true circumcision, the one that counts with God, is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. One of the powerful themes that pervades the New Testament is the distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law means law-keeping as a matter of externals, of appearances rather than of the heart. Just as the Jews had come to treat the external sign of circumcision as an end in itself, being circumcised makes me holy, so they had come to treat the law as a list of rules regarding specific behaviors And they acted as if the appearance of caring about the law was as valuable as the reality of caring about the character of God. And it was never, those two things were never equivalent. So as as long as other men saw them appearing to do the things of the law, they figured they were doing just fine. But the spirit of the law is law-keeping from the heart, from the inside out. It's all about pleasing God without regard to pleasing men. Living according to the spirit of the law is not checklist righteousness. It's real righteousness. It's God's righteousness at heart, uh, at work in the heart of redeemed men. And we'll see a lot more again about this true righteousness as we proceed through this marvelous epistle. In fact, true righteousness given to men by God is what this epistle is about. And by the way, I don't find it particularly concerning whether you capitalize the word spirit in verse 29 or not. Either way, it is only by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit that anyone comes to know or to keep the law of God. I want to talk for a minute, and we're going to finish a little early today, hallelujah, about a couple of things that we as believers should glean from Paul's indictment of the Jews, because this is not just about Jews. The Jew that Paul is indicting and Jews as a whole certainly had no monopoly on hypocrisy and self-righteousness. The church of Jesus Christ struggles with these same sins on an ongoing basis. One of the most common reasons I've heard for professing believers staying away from church is the hypocrisy and judgmentalism they encounter in the church. From one perspective, their avoidance is understandable. If we as God's people are more characterized by arrogant judgmentalism than by love, humility, grace, and forgiveness, 
then we deserve to see people leave our churches. Everything that we're seeing in these passages should drive us to humility toward God and toward one another, not to self-righteousness. But there's another side to that scenario that I think is much more in keeping with where Paul is going in this passage. If you're tempted to bail out on God's church because the people in it are too judgmental for your taste, that response should trigger a red flag, a big warning sign in your mind that has one word on it. Hypocrite. Anytime you find yourself pointing your accusing finger, to, at, finger at others because of the hypocrisy or judgmentalism that you see in them, Paul, on behalf of God, says you might as well be pointing at yourself. If you ever find a church with no hypocrites, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Remember the story last week from 2 Samuel 12 when the prophet Nathan baited David into a fit of self-righteous indignation about this landowner who was so devoid of compassion that he took his poor farmer's, this poor farmer's one little ewe lamb and he slew it to feed a visitor. When David irately declared that the landowner should be killed for such a grievous lack of compassion, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Well, beloved, that's what God is saying to you and me anytime we direct our supposed righteous indignation toward a fellow believer for the hypocrisy that we see in him. You are the person whose hypocrisy you condemn. Your disdain for the self-righteousness you see in other believers is merely a cleverly veiled self-righteousness of its own, is it not? And it's proof that apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, you are condemned too. And if you reject that line of reasoning and think that your indignation over the hypocrisy you see in others is justified, that's because you think way too highly of yourself. Paul's words here are God's words. And this is God's indictment against all mankind. Jew and Gentile, those condemned as sinners by the self-righteous together with the self-righteous who condemn them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God did not save you so you could abandon His church just because the people in it don't perform any better than you do. He saved you and He put His Holy Spirit within you and He gave you spiritual gifts that other people don't have so that He could use you to build up His church. Not so you could condemn it and walk away from it. If you don't believe that, spend a few minutes in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. How is it going to work if the people most committed to grace decide that the church isn't gracious enough and walk away. And how gracious is that in the first place? The measure of your and my relationship with God is the love, the sacrificial love that we have for the people of God. Look at 1 John chapters 3 and 4. It is not the conviction with which we judge God's people. One last thing. 
knowing the uncompromising nature of God's indictment against every man in these passages is supremely important for us as believers. For God to so forcefully lay out the bad news about our fallen character is as gracious as revealing to us the good news about what Jesus did to redeem us because you cannot know the latter without knowing the former. Knowing what we actually deserve from the hand of God is a very clarifying and freeing knowledge. (laughs) It radically changes the way we view and approach other people, particularly the way we respond to the wrongs done by others against us or against those that we love. When you know without a doubt that your heart is every bit as dark as the heart of the brother you, you feel so compelled to judge, and you know that were it not for the grace of God and Jesus Christ, you would both be eternally, utterly, equally lost, then your response is not to judge. Your response is to bow down on your face before God and thank Him for showing grace to both of you. And then to reflect that same marvelous grace in your dealings with that brother. If you're a believer and you still find it hard to respond that way to the sins of others, it's simply because of the lingering effects of the spiritual blindness from which God has saved you. The solution is quite simply to improve your sight. And that means you must get more familiar with the character of God. The more clearly you see Him, the more clearly you'll see yourself and everyone else. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and He shows us everything else that we need to know. I know of only one place to go to gain that sight, and it's the Word of God. Loving Father, I pray that we as believers wouldn't read this passage and say, yeah, look at that Jew. But that we would recognize this is just one piece of Paul's indictment of all of us. And Father, I pray that we, as Your children, we who have been made the objects of Your grace when all we deserved was eternal condemnation, that we would respond with a humility toward You and with the humility and graciousness toward one another that is revolutionary compared with the way this world lives and thinks. Father, I I pray for all of us, young and old, that we would give no quarter to judging one another as if we had something that that other brother or sister doesn't have that makes us better in your eyes. Father, the the words, Paul, here are powerful. Help us to understand them. Help us to spread them to others, to proclaim the bad news and the good news of Jesus Christ, and to cling to Him as the only one who allows us to stand righteous, spotless, and blameless in Your sight for all eternity. Pray that anyone here who has not taken You at Your word and believed in Your Son, would do so this very day. We ask these things in Jesus' 
precious name for his sake that he may be exalted. Amen.